Welcome to Every Moment His, a podcast dedicated to contemplating how God's preached word impacts every moment of our lives. This sermon was preached at Holy Cross in Kearney, Nebraska by Pastor John Rasmussen. Again, uh, good morning. Uh, This is sermon three of three in our sermon series, Generous God, Generous Church. And so let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, that's on page 968. So 2 Corinthians chapter 9, page 968. And uh, we'll read the text here in a little bit uh, after a couple brief words beforehand. So, so far in this series, we've seen what motivates our generosity. We've seen that uh, the motivation for our generosity is the unearned, generous grace of Jesus Christ, the one who, though he was eternally rich, became poor, even the poverty of the cross, so that you and I would be able to have the riches of God's love and everlasting life. And it's that grace, that unearned grace of Jesus Christ that melts our hearts into generous uh, liberal givers. We've also seen the grace, the way that grace shapes the way in which we give. Just like God is deliberate in saving us, setting his heart upon us in love before the foundation of the earth, sending his son to bear the weight of our sins before we were even born, before we could even reach out to him. Because God is deliberate in giving to us, rather than just occasional or incidental, we are also people who give in a way that's intentional and purposeful and planned. Also, just like God willingly and cheerfully saved us, uh, we are also willing, cheerful givers, giving in the same way that God gave to us, rather than being hesitant or reluctant. And so finally today, we're going to take a look at the big picture why behind all of our generosity as Christians. Because if you and I can grasp that big picture why behind generosity, then generosity will follow in our practice, even if at times it be hard or sacrificial. One of the things I've noticed about children is that starting at about maybe the age of three or four, uh, most children become philosophers. And what I mean by that is this. Uh, So you say to a preschooler, it's time to clean up. The preschooler says, why? You know where this is going. Uh, And then you say, well, because we always clean up before dinner. Why? Well, because we need to eat dinner. Why do we eat dinner? (laughs) Well, because we want to have all the vitamins and the minerals we need to grow up strong. And to that, the preschooler says, why? And within a span of about two minutes, you've gone from a simple question about why we eat dinner all the way to a question of why the universe exists in the first place. Uh, It can escalate that quickly. Uh, But it's important that we ask those why questions when it comes to what we're doing, and preschoolers do that pretty well. I remember being an older kid in about eighth grade and asking those same why questions as I was suffering 
through the boredom of Spanish class. I was sitting in Spanish class, and we were doing this, uh, this, this torture routine called uh, conjugating Spanish verbs. And so we go around to each kid, and you know, we're sitting there kind of like this, and uh, the teacher would ask us to give a, a certain conjugation for maybe the verb querer in the third person singular. So we'd go around and say, yo quiero el libro, or tu quieres el libro, or el ella quieres el libro, on and on and on. Um, and I just remember sitting there thinking, why are we doing this? Like, I don't ever really plan to use Spanish at all, so why are we doing this? I didn't really have a why behind the practice of what I was doing, so it was an exercise of suffering. I think I felt that way about a lot of my classes. But it wasn't until later in life that I actually found a why for what I was doing. And once I found that why, even the difficulty of learning a language was pretty simple because I had a heart for it, because I had a why. Uh, later in life in high school, I was on a mission trip with my high school to uh, Mazatlan, Mexico. And uh, every evening on that mission trip, we would go to church uh, at this little church uh, on the, it was like a storefront church. And uh, we would have uh, these long church services entirely in Spanish, like the sermon was like an hour in Spanish. So I just remember sitting there and thinking, I can't understand a word of what this pastor's saying. I maybe caught like Dios and La Biblia or the repeated phrase, Gloria a Dios. But other than that, I did not know what was going on. And then after that, we would gather out in the street in front of the church and have some fellowship. And, and I remember just really wanting to talk with these other Christians because we had this heart bond. We loved each other because we were both Christians, but there was this language barrier. And it was frustrating to not be able to speak to one another freely. And so that experience made me discover the why of learning a language. And so even though it was hard to learn Spanish in the following years, it became rather easy because I understood why I wanted to do that. So that later in life, as I traveled to Mexico uh, in college, I was able to carry on conversations beyond yo quiero, el libro, etc. Um, and once I discovered the why, everything followed. And I think that is so important for everything in life, is that we need to understand the why of what we're doing. Because if we don't have a solid why for whatever we're doing, regardless of what it is, our heart won't really be into it. And it will be maybe even a drudgery. But if we can understand the why, then the action will willingly follow afterwards. And I believe that applies especially to the practice of generosity. You know, sometimes in the practice of generosity, we may be givers, but we may not understand the why. And so it just becomes a habit and we never really reflect on how does this giving fit into the bigger picture, the bigger why of what God is doing. Or sometimes we may not be generous, and that lack of generosity, that lack of consistent generosity, is tied back to our lack of why. I believe that's true here in 2 Corinthians 9, where I see the Apostle Paul striving to help the Corinthians to understand the why behind the generosity God had called them to. Now, we're going to read the text now, and as I read the text, I want you, if you got your Bible, to underline or note the word thanks or thanksgiving. Thanks or thanksgiving, because that's going to form the why behind our generosity. 
So starting at verse 6, Paul writes this. He says, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he, who, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. So today I want to zoom in to just one single verse. I want to zoom into verse 12 because I believe this verse gets to the heart, the why of our generosity. And the generosity also that Paul's inviting the Corinthians to practice. Now just to back up a little bit to review, especially if you're just jumping into this series, uh, what's going on here is that Paul was inviting some of the churches that he had founded the churches of the Corinthians or the Macedonians, like the Philippians, Thessalonians, and Bereans, he's inviting them into this practice of generosity for the sake of poor, persecuted Christians in Jerusalem. So these Christians in Jerusalem were struggling. They were on hard times. And, and so Paul is inviting these other Christians to, to set aside a generous gift that they could then send to the church in Jerusalem to help supply their need, to relieve them. Now, some of these churches had practiced surprising, over-the-top generosity. For example, the Macedonian churches, the Philippians, Thessalonians, and Bereans. They were on their own hard times. They were suffering, persecuted, impoverished, and yet their generosity overflowed even out of their need as they gave to other poor, persecuted Christians they had never even met before. And yet the Corinthians are sort of lagging in their generosity, even in spite of their abundance. The Corinthians were more or less uh, kind of well-fed, well-provided-for people, and yet they had lagged in their practice of generosity. So Paul is trying to help them to see the bigger picture into which their generosity would fit. So once again, verse 12, Paul says, For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. In other words, Paul's saying that this financial gift isn't just going to supply the needs of the saints in Jerusalem. It's not just going to put food in their bellies and clothing on their backs, but it's going to accomplish something far greater, in fact, something eternal. 
For one, this gift is going to strengthen the relationship between the Jewish and the Gentile Christians. These two ethnic groups did not always like each other or trust each other, even after they all became part of one church. And so Paul has this deeper purpose that he wants to bind their hearts together in love so that they might trust each other, even despite their long history of not loving one another. Paul wanted these Jewish Christians to see that these Gentile Christians, former idol worshipers and pagans, were truly God's people, evidenced by the love that they showed to other Christians. But the reason is even greater than just this. The gift that Paul would bring the church in Jerusalem would create something. It would create praise and glory and honor and thanksgiving for God, not just now, but forever. Once again, Paul says, for the ministry of the service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. This is the ultimate aim of any gift that we give as Christians. The ultimate aim is this is that the gift that you give would eventually be translated into praise and honor and glory and thanksgiving to God now and forever and ever and ever. I would say that sometimes as a church, we can be limited in our perspective when it comes to giving. We don't see the greater purpose into which our giving fits. Churches may be so focused on meeting a financial goal or having enough resources, but we don't always see the big picture into which all of those things fit. For example, why does our church want to be able to afford staff who can minister the Word of God to all ages? Why do we want that? Why do we want a Sunday school program and a youth program and a confirmation program? Why do we want small groups? Why do we want these things? What's the purpose of those things? Or why does our church want to have quality audio and visual equipment and all those things that make worship work well? Is it just so that we all sound and look nice? Or is it even just so that people will hear the Word of God and believe? Or why do we want to be able to have a worship space that is big enough and a parking lot that is easy to navigate? Is it just so that we have no space issues? Is it just so that there's no altercations in the parking lot? Is that the only reason? Is it just so that things move smoothly? Once again, we got to be preschoolers here, right? we got to ask why, 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 why? I will tell you why. The reason for every single dollar that goes into our offering plate, the reason, the purpose, the goal for every single financial goal that we set as a congregation, the reason is summed up, it's actually summed up in a song. And I'm going to sing it. I'm not a good singer. So I'm going to turn my microphone off. I'm going to get us started. And I'm, I'm, I'm leaning on you, 8 o'clock service, to, to help me out here, okay? All right? Don't leave me on my own here. This isn't a solo act. So the question is, why do we give? The reason that we give is summed up in praise God for...
very simply put, that is the purpose for every single gift that we give as a church. And thank you for singing with me. That was really beautiful. The reason that we have staff, the reason that we have Sunday school or a youth program or small groups or plenty of space to worship, the reason that we have anything, the aim of every dollar that goes into our offering plate is the glory, the praise, the honor, and the thanks given to the name of God forever and ever and ever and ever. And if you can see that, if you can grasp that why, then the act of generosity follows very easily. In fact, this is the very reason that Jesus Christ lived and suffered and died and rose again. If I were to ask you the question, why did our Savior Jesus Christ die and rise again? I have a feeling that you would respond in this way. You would say, Jesus, my Savior, died for me so that I could enjoy the forgiveness of sins and the gift of life everlasting. And that's a true answer. That's the kind of answer a Christian should give. And while it's true, it's not true enough. Because the truth, the even truer truth, is that Jesus Christ died and rose again, not only to forgive your sins, but more importantly, so that the forgiveness of your sins would allow you to stand in God's presence and give him thanks and praise and glory and honor forever and ever and ever. I mean, forgiveness isn't good news if we don't get to enjoy the goodness of God and worship him forever. There's a bigger purpose to that forgiveness. The goal of Jesus' offering of his life was that we would glorify and praise and worship God forever. And in the same way, that's the goal of every offering that we give to God, is that others might glorify and worship and praise God forever and ever. And that is why the Apostle Paul mentions the word thanks or thanksgiving three times in this short little section on giving. As he wraps up his thoughts to the Corinthians, he uses these words thanksgiving. He even uses the word glorify in there once. Because Paul sees the bigger picture. He knows that the generous gift won't just feed and clothe and comfort the saints in Jerusalem, but more importantly, it will create praise and honor and glory for God's name. And it will also help that church in Jerusalem to get out of survival mode so they can get back to the work of sharing the gospel with others so that they too would join in to the eternal song of praise to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so as we close today, I want you to see this because if you see it, if you grasp it in your heart and in your mind, it will transform the way that you approach generosity in your church. And the truth is this, that your offering, whether you're five years old and you're giving a dollar the first fruits of your allowance, or you're 30 years old or 50 years old, if you've been a Christian for a long time or only a short time, every gift that you give has eternal significance. If you could connect the dots between the offering put into the plate and how God uses that gift, the eventual effect of that gift, you would see that your offering has eternal significance. It's just like when a, a farmer puts a seed in the ground, the goal of that seed is not just to have a crop. When a farmer puts a seed in the ground, the goal is that that 
seed would take root and then grow and then become a harvest. And then that harvest will be taken to market and then it's crafted into food. And then it goes onto somebody's table and then it sustains our very lives. There's a, there's a, a direct connection between planting the seed in the ground and your next heartbeat or next breath because that seed eventually will sustain your very life. And in the same way, the seed that we sow financially into God's kingdom eventually translate into people having eternal breath in their lungs, praising God forever. In fact, if you're able to look at your very own salvation, you'll see that it was somebody else's generosity that led to your salvation. Now, obviously, the greatest generosity that led to our salvation is the generous giving of the life of Jesus Christ for us and the generosity of the Holy Spirit that was poured out into our hearts to give us the gift of faith so that we can receive that generous gift of salvation. But in order to deliver God's gift of salvation to you, he has used the generosity of other Christians. It took the generosity of other Christians to bring the gospel all the way from the mouth of Jesus to the mouth of the apostles all the way through the generations to us right here in this moment. It took the generosity and the sacrifice of other Christians. It was the generosity of other Christians who paid for the missionary to bring the gospel to the land where your ancestors once lived so that they could hear it for the first time and then pass it down generation through generation into your hands and into your heart. It was the generosity of others who founded the Lutheran Day School where your grandparents learned the word of God in their childhood, which they would then share with your parents, which they then shared with you, and so on. It was the generosity of other Christians who paid for the seminary education of the pastor who baptized you and taught you the faith was the generosity of other Christians that funded the vacation Bible school where perhaps you came to know Jesus as a child. I could go on and on, but I think you get the point. That I guarantee you that behind your individual story of salvation is the story of somebody else's generosity that God used to place his generous gift into your hands. Your generosity has eternal value. And the eternal life that you have in Christ is yours in part through the generosity of others. And so as we have received generous gifts from God's hand through the generous hands of others, may it be that we joyfully pass on God's gifts to others by way of our own generosity. And so thanks be to God for his wonderful, generous gift. Amen.